Hey folks, this is Anatoly, and you're listening to the Solana Podcast. And today I have an amazing guest with me. It's Eli Kaduri, who's the CEO of Intuition Machines. Um, awesome to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Excited to be here. So, like, uh, I think most people haven't heard of Intuition Machines, but have used it, which is kind of like one of these like really cool hidden gems on the web. Um, can you kind of like, I don't know, in- introduce the the company, what it does, and like, um, and actually how you ended up getting into crypto, which is also like kind of a, I think, an interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. So, Intuition Machines is really an enterprise ML company, and our sort of origin was in solving problems at very large scale for very large tech companies. And as part of the solutions we needed to build, we had various problems that led us to create other solutions, and then some of them later became products. And one example of those products is HCAPTCHA, which is actually now running on more than 15% of the internet. So it's very likely that you've run into it um, you know, by design for usability purposes. The interface is relatively similar to uh, Google's reCAPTCHA, um, but you'll notice the nice hand <laughs> um, in blue, which will give it away. So uh, I guess the, the five-second version of you know, why we're using any blockchain technology at all and you know, why that was interesting to us is that you know, some of the folks at the company come from a security background. And so we'd actually been interested in blockchain space for many years. Um, you know, I actually read the original Bitcoin white paper when it came out on the Cypherpunks mailing list. And I thought like, man, this is the worst design system I've ever heard of. I cannot believe how inefficient that would be. No one will ever use that. <laughs> like it's insane. That was my my feeling too. And same thing about Ethereum, which was like, <laughs> well, they put a they put JavaScript inside of it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's like you managed to create JavaScript with overflows. Like that's uh, very impressive, right? Uh, <laughs> um, so with that context, we we'd been you know in in sort of in the space intellectually for, for many years, sort of following what was going on. But as you know, the, the sort of perception, especially in even Silicon Valley, was not particularly positive for blockchain technology. And so we had this sort of interesting dilemma in that some of the things we were doing at the company would in fact benefit from these kinds of approaches, but we needed to be relatively uh, careful on how we implemented it and communicated that to our large enterprise customers, because obviously our primary goal is simply to provide services to, to these folks. And, you know, anything that sort of hinders that is not sort of a selling point for us. And so I am proud to say that we've actually you know, been publicly disclosing that we've used blockchain technology since the beginning. Um, you know, it's uh, right on the, on the website, you know, that, you know, tens of millions of people, you know, see every month. Um, but it's not made sort of the focal point in that, you know, okay, the, the only reason this thing exists is because of some blockchain uh, product, because in reality, it's simply powering the sort of businesses and the services that we wanted to deliver anyway. So um, HCAPTCHA is one of those things that is almost like it's in this exact same design space as proof of work. 
it, it's kind of weird, right? <laughs> You're trying to to prove that somebody's a human by making them do a task that is hard for computers. <laughs> um, it's kind of kind of interesting, right? Um, yeah, and the the sort of inside of H Captcha, it really comes from us having more of an ML background than most people in the security space. And that was really that there's sort of an arms race, right? Um, eternally, models are getting better and therefore the kinds of problems that models can solve, um, you know, the sort of space of that is always expanding. And so if you want to stay ahead of that, the best way to do that is actually to create a rational reason for especially machine learning companies to give you the things that they're having trouble solving, but people are not. And in so doing, you actually start to filter down to the set of possible questions that is by definition at the edge of the state of the art. Otherwise, people would not pay you to get answers to them. <laughs> so, so, which is kind of awesome. Like you, you're, the approach to proving that you're not a human like at scale is to train a bot to be better and better at pretending to be human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it's it's like a beautiful thing i think like uh that that (laughs) that, that's the result um you guys are like i think mostly focused on image kind of identification we work in the text domain space as well and in sentiment analysis and in other areas but the thing to keep in mind is that our sort of addressable audience is so large that you're never going to see more than a tiny number of the possible uh, challenges. And so you may only ever see questions about, uh, let's say, you know, identifying buses uh, or bicycles, but somewhere else in the world, someone might be seeing a question, asking them to translate a, a line of text from Arabic. And so it really just depends on what the needs are in the system at that time. Do you think that, like, do you see that edge of what's between problems solved by humans and computers? Do you see that edge moving forward? Or or is it then kind of static? Well, there are things that bigger and bitter, bigger models can address, right? And then there are things that better models can address. And so as things get bigger, you can do things like... Uh, sort of identify more categories of objects or translate sentences better um, simply because you have more and more stuff being put into train and the model itself is larger and therefore you have um, sort of larger amount of space to draw your inferences from, right? Effectively like more memory. And then there are problems where the models that we have today are simply not very good at doing inference, right? And these are especially in domains where, again, it's pretty simple for people in terms of even things like identifying subjects or emotions or other attributes in uh, in sort of textual analysis, especially where you know we have uh, things that can produce fairly plausible uh, texts like GPT-3 and so on on one side, but we're still actually not very good at extracting a lot of that information from more nuanced text, especially when the memory required exceeds more than one sentence. So if you need to refer back to something earlier in a one-page document, now you're getting to areas where it gets a little more challenging. 
And of course, these are all like simple problems, right? As you start to move into slightly more complex problems, then we're totally underwater and we're not anywhere close to <laughs> where we need to be. So we've had amazing progress in the last 10 years, like truly amazing progress. I've been doing this for a really long time now. And the sort of deep learning revolution of 2012 was a real thing. It was a step change in our ability to process the world, especially the visual world. But we're still at 1% of where we need to be, if that. Is there like, um, you know, like in, in a weird way, like my journey into crypto started with deep learning to myself and <laughs> one of the co-founders we had this idea to uh build deep learning machine hardware and offset the capital cost by mining crypto in the background <laughs> whenever there weren't any jobs to do and this is this is how we ended up thinking about like proof of work and, and civil resistance and things like that um I like wonder why you guys like started thinking about blockchain and, and crypto, you know, from an ML, you know, you guys are an ML company, right? Which is really rare that you find a company that says, we think we have a problem that blockchain can solve in, in the true way. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, my, my joke is always, it's like combining a couple of different things that barely work together and somehow, you know, attempting to... <laughs> <laughs> maintain the same level of performance of the things that just barely work, <laughs> you know, which as like any sort of basic Fermiism would tell you is actually very unlikely. Right. <laughs> so anyway, yes, the, the reason we were interested in this was, you know, we, we, a lot of us actually do also have a distributed systems background. Um, some of my colleagues were, you know, core contributors at the, at the Apache software foundation, you know, worked on Hadoop and similar systems very early on. Um, the things we were doing as an ML company, were at enormous scale, right? So, you know, at points in the last few years, we've actually been one of the largest uh, consumers of, uh, you know, sort of cloud compute for machine learning purposes in any given moment. And the side effect of that is that you do spend quite a lot of time thinking about the ways in which you can distribute tasks and the sort of systems and architectures that enable that kind of, uh, you know, sort of workload. So it's not like we didn't know anything about this, but the reason we got interested in particular application was that when we were uh, delivering our, our sort of initial products um, to our large enterprise customers, we were actually were consuming a huge amount of human annotations to make our uh, pipelines run effectively. And we tried you know, various things, building Team Vietnam, using the existing services, but they didn't really do what we wanted. And so that was the genesis of a capture was realizing, oh, okay, Google is harvesting, you know, billion plus annotations a day from people uh, and they're not paying anyone for it. They're not compensating anyone. They're delivering a pretty lousy security service uh, as the compensation. And so when I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that this was basically a two-sided market, except the market clearing rate was effectively zero, right? So there was only one entrant <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the bid side it was zero and it was only google and so that's where the idea to make it a slightly fairer ecosystem came from was to say like well why don't we try and share some of the rewards here with the the uh, sites that are basically providing labor you know effectively the publishers in our world right just the same way they benefit from their users when they are sort of selling their attention for ads they should be able to benefit from them when they are being forced to use some of their attention for security purposes. So 
once you have that kind of insight, then you start to think like, well, okay, it's a two-sided market, but actually, you know, it's kind of a low trust environment, right? There are a lot of untrusted actors on both sides here. And, you know, one of the, the sort of interesting things about the problem is that if you think about the, the mechanism that you use to do, uh, for example, interrater agreement to see like, okay, uh, these three people said the same thing. Um, that seems like it's probably the right answer. Or, okay, these three people say the same thing, but some hidden data that I have access to says that they're wrong. Therefore, they're actually colluding and I should disregard all answers from them is a problem that fundamentally can be, first of all, automated 100%. And second of all, it could actually be automated uh, potentially you know, in some kind of smart contract. And so once you start thinking about th that, you realize this is effectively one of the, the relatively few areas where there's a natural mapping of uh, basically software to management, right? So you might have 10,000 workers contributing to the set of tasks that you propose inside of this distributed um, sort of work system. And yet you're able to compensate only the ones who are accurate and not compensate the ones who are not and determine that quite quickly so that people are not wasting their time. And then finally aggregate all those results, compute the final accuracy and deliver the results, whether it's to a person or to a machine that's requesting that. And so if you're in this environment where you say, okay, I want to enable people in you know, almost every country in the world to be able to participate in the system, and I don't really want to have any barriers to them, and there's actually value flowing in both directions, so it would be really nice if I could somehow encapsulate that value in these communications, then you start to think more about the electronic money world because very quickly you realize, oh, okay, the, the individual amount for any of these transactions is very small, right? It's not economic to send someone a PayPal every single time they answer a task correctly, for example. And so now you're forced into aggregation and you quickly realize you have to do actually quite a lot of aggregation to make it work. And so the closer you can get to these kinds of one-to-one -one transfers, the, the fairer the system is, the more attractive the system is and uh, to both sides. And the, the more efficient it is economically, right? since there is a real sort of time value to money, as you know. And if you are working for weeks before you get paid, which is the sort of traditional uh, cycle in the United States, as you work for two weeks or 30 days even, and then you get paid, you are effectively giving a loan to your employer, right? Yep. And if you're getting paid every day, you're giving a smaller loan. And if you're getting paid every hour, you're giving an even smaller loan. And so I think the, the closer you can get to instantaneous compensation, the fairer the system is. And the closer you can get to fully automated uh, real-time evaluation, again, the fairer the system is for everyone involved, right? There's no question about whether or not the, the work you're doing was accurate or not. There's no question about how that was calculated. Uh, and so that's where the some of the other interesting aspects of doing this um, you know, potentially on-chain came from is if you can actually prove the way in which you are evaluating results, then there can't really be any dispute about it, right? There's no room for disagreement. You can even publish the software and say, this is how I computed it. And here's how I'm proving that this was the 
the calculation run. And it's not a very complicated calculation, so you can easily audit it. And at that point, you've created something that actually reduces friction as opposed to increasing friction. Because that's one of the, the fundamental issues in a lot of the you know, applications that have tried to sort of port onto the blockchain is they are actually increasing the friction and reducing the value compared to alternatives. And it really only makes sense if you're able to do the opposite. This this is like a like uh, sounds like a really tough engineering problem. Just hearing you describe this the system, I'm already thinking like, how do you differentiate between like your results that you're computing as like valid results can't be spoofed by a bot, right? Like <laughs> to some with some accuracy, right? So you, how do you like filter out the bots that are trying to extract free labor, like free money from you? And how do you guarantee like how do you guarantee that the folks that are like observing the system can't just kind of throw in results and follow on, right? Like there's like a bunch of nuanced problems here that <laughs> you've described that are seem non-trivial to solve. You are absolutely right, and that's why we had to write about a half million lines of code to make this thing work um, altogether. But I should actually take this opportunity to say that the version of the problem that we were speaking about now is actually the hardest possible version, right? So we effectively solved the hardest possible version of this first. In reality, what I just described is a generalized system for effectively quantizing human labor. And you can apply it in environments of varying trust and still get substantial benefits. So if you are sending tasks to a bunch of radiologists sitting in a room who are all under NDA and are all you know, in sort of a HIPAA-certified uh, environment, you have very different trust requirements there um, on all sides compared to the, the HCAPTCHA version where you're sending tasks out to hundreds of millions of people around the world who may or may not even be people, right? And so that's one of the, the reasons it was quite interesting for us to do it this way is we actually had to solve all those much harder versions of the problem first and then back it down to um, sort of the, uh, <clears throat> the less challenging environments. So yes, you, you do need to be able to understand if someone is a person, there are lots of ways to do that. Um, you know, you can use the, the Google approach of basically sort of like ad network as security service where you track everyone all across the web, you know, every single click they make, and then you try to compute a behavioral score from that. Turns out that's not a very accurate uh, system ultimately. You can use, uh, you know, slightly more, basically slightly more sophisticated approaches. Um, for example, once you get pretty good at understanding what actual human beings do in the, the sort of sequence of a task solution, then you can start to predict at extremely high accuracy whether or not they're really a person, even if they get it incorrect, right? Um, people tend to have the same kinds of category errors that, you know, across uh, similar tasks that machines do not. And so, you know, we can predict extremely high accuracy if someone is a person or not uh, with just a couple of answers, right? And, you know, we don't really need to, you know, retain an eternal history of them across the web or anything like that, you know, for this to work. But that did take us a couple of years to figure out. And we do have like a big team of PhDs, you know, working on this stuff. 
<laughs> so it was not really things we could pull off the shelf. So, so this is like a problem and a general problem in ad tech, right? How do you know that the people looking at your website are humans versus bots? Yeah, and ad tech is interesting, right? Because you don't really have the opportunity to add additional information, right? And that's one of the real differentiators in any kind of um, system that has annotation roots is that you're actually able to add entropy effectively, right? So it's like, okay, I see something, I'm not really certain. In the ad tech system, I'm done. Like I don't have additional inputs, right? In our system, we're not certain, we can show you a challenge. And if we're still not certain, we can show you a different kind of challenge. We can keep going down that path until we are now um, sort of converging on extremely high certainty that either like A, you're a person or B, you're not a person. Uh, and then of course, in the security context, you have additional things you might want to find out, like, you know, is this a click farm versus not a click farm, right? And you can basically apply the same general idea there. But how do you differentiate? Like you you guys actually think, you, you, you believe that you can differentiate a click farm from a, like a human that is just about to enter a website? Like, are you guys that dialed into like patterns? Yeah, we're able to distinguish click farms with very high accuracy in most cases. And you know, for the annotation use case, it's not really relevant, right? Like if it's a human, it's a human. But for the broader security use case, then of course you want to be able to go further. That That is kind of fascinating because that's not, not like, <laughs> um, this is like a very interesting problem because it has so many, it intersects so much in like the crypto economic games that people try to build for proof of stake protocols, like where, you know, like, how do we know that we have enough validators, right? Like, it's they're just IP addresses, and those are trivially spoofed. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's a general use case for proof of humanity in in the blockchain world, and that's one of the things that you know I would like to see getting a little more attention over the next few years because there are fundamental benefits to being able to create a known fixed uh, lower bound cost on certain operations. And that's effectively what you can do if you say there must be a person connected to this. It could be a person hooked up to a click farm. It could be a real person, you know, but I know that there was a person involved in this transaction, right? So I think there are some interesting possibilities there that haven't really been explored yet. How cheap does this micropayment network have to be for it to be effective like i guess like when, when when the way you guys are scaling this out is to the entire internet which is you know three billion people at this point it needs to run at many many billions of um, operations per day in our case operations actually will have uh, in most cases some sort of value attached to them and so that's why i was saying the naive approach would be to simply do one-to-one for all of those operations. And if performance is no object, then that would actually be a very reasonable design, right? It would require on the order of hundreds of thousands to millions of operations per second, but you would be creating sort of an optimally fair system, right? And so if the value of that is sufficient, then it would make sense to simply design it in that way. Because of the you know, the intrinsically low value of a lot of the tasks that we're capturing at web scale compared to, for example, the tasks you can capture from a radiologist. <laughs> um, 
then there are different parameters that come into play. And the fact that we actually built all of this a couple of years ago and you know, have been running it for a couple of years on actual um, existing blockchain tech means that we had to create many layers of aggregation to really make this work. And so as an example in our system, let's say you have like a job that has a, a million tasks in it that's already going to get chunked up into tasks of you know, maybe like 200 tasks in a chunk. Those 200 tasks might be asked of, let's say, three people. And then all of those tasks will actually get aggregated back down again into one on-chain transaction um, for the results collection and analysis. And then there will be a one-to-many call for however many participants there were in that chunk. So there might have been you know, 900 separate people. There might have been 500 separate people, um, or there might have been like four labor pools, and a labor pool for us is just any collection of people behind one um, you know, sort of payment entity. And luckily, we are targeting websites, and so even though we have you know, like you know, many, many, many thousands of websites, um, in reality, you know, many millions of websites running through the system, uh, the sort of fundamental uh, you know, power law um, dynamics mean that you're typically not going to be paying out to, you know, 10,000 um, separate websites in any given chunk. And so you can often fit that into, you know, just a couple of calls using our one-to-many um, system that we have implemented now on top of standard Ethereum. And so that means that we might have to pay out to, you know, 400 addresses and we can make four or five calls. And so that's not too bad. Um, but in reality, it's still much slower and much less efficient than it should be, right? All of these things are basically compromises that we would rather not make. Do you envision a world where you guys basically pay for every H captcha to a human, like that you bypass kind of this intermediate website? I think someone should definitely build that system. <laughs> there are enormous challenges in dealing with large numbers of people, and it's sort of a fundamental, you know, operational aspect of anything like this and that do you want to deal with a hundred million people or a thousand people dealing with a thousand people is radically cheaper and radically you know less time intensive and even things like just explaining to them what you're doing explaining something to a thousand people is almost infinitely easier than explaining to 100 million people if you can actually get a hundred million people to accept crypto that is in itself kind of a revolutionary thing (laughs) um because they have to kind of like for them to accept that they have to have a key right and they have to kind of go through this flow you effectively can could onboard a hundred million users um is that like something that you guys have thought that like if you could pay directly to each one of these h capture recipients you could potentially create the most widest distribution of any cryptocurrency like overnight? Well, so we have been doing some experiments. Um, you know, we're very focused on privacy, right? And one of the things we've been working on for a couple of years now is uh, something called Privacy Pass. And what Privacy Pass does is it basically defines a system in which you can create uh, non-linkable uh, redemptions of tokens. And so there is in Privacy Pass basically 
in the current form like a browser extension. You install the browser extension, and now you effectively have a wallet inside of your browser, and you are filling that wallet by, in our case, solving an HCAPTCHA, right? And then you get these tokens, and you can actually redeem them in order to bypass an HCAPTCHA in the future. And when you redeem them, you're doing so in such a way that the proof you provide is not linkable to issuance. And so we don't know who it is who's proving that they solved it. We just know that at some point in the past, they did in fact solve HCAPTCHA correctly. And that was the thing that caused them to have this issuance. And then the redemption fully, fully anonymous, right? So, you know, I think it's, it's ultimately all about incentives, right? Like what is the incentive for people to take any action? It's usually some kind of personal benefit. So one possible personal benefit is in fact to have an easier time of proving their humanity on the web. And of course you can in fact incentivize different behaviors in that way. Another possible benefit is having provable privacy, which is becoming more important, especially in, in Europe. And so I think there, there are ways to explore this, but the, the sort of regulatory burden of experiments in the space is very high, right? And especially as you have more and more users and more and more jurisdictions, you know, HCAPTCHA actually, we looked at this the other day, in the last 30 days, it was used in every single country and territory recognized by the UN. It's like 247. <laughs> That's including territories that have a population of 30 people, right? And so I do not think that we can navigate the regulatory burden of simply giving people in, you know, 200 plus jurisdictions uh, tokens and saying, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we are, you know, very interested in, in things that we can do. That is, oh man, <laughs> we're so close to to adoption of cryptocurrency. <laughs> and and yeah. yet so far mm-hmm. away. <laughs> um, that That's really fascinating. Um, I had this like vision, which is, might've been silly. Is that like, these systems like that are like universal computers, once they get complicated enough, it's really hard to know what's going on. And, and like from a macro perspective, and it could be that like, you know, we're getting tokens and we're keeping these systems alive, but we don't, we're like ants that don't understand the intelligence of the anthill. Um, <laughs> running a validator adds a little bit of security, right? Fault tolerance. And then there's this protocol on top of it where I'm training an ML machine, which could be running inside this thing, right? And basically <laughs> kind of like, do, do you think that like the birth of these kind of fault tolerant, like long-term systems is like the place where long-lived general purpose AI is going to end up? (laughs) You know, like true artificial consciousness in some ways. (laughs) Uh, Well, not if all it's doing is like, you know, running uh, SHA-256 hashes. (laughs) (laughs) But you can have it doing a little, like slightly more useful work than, you know, you got lots of possibilities, right? But I think we see this in, in all kinds of systems, right? They're just getting more complex and you know, to the extent that we're applying ML, they, they tend to get a little more non-deterministic, right? And there is an interesting path there, but you know, we're still so many orders of magnitude away from 
you know, what we really need to, to do anything approaching what we would recognize as like general AI from our current techniques, right? If we could get better, then maybe there's some options there, right? Like human brain is not consuming even hundred watts of power, right? <laughs> so why, why are we not able to create general AI in hundred watts? Like, well, we didn't have a couple billion years to figure it out. I mean, I think like, you know, with something like HCAPTCHA, if that system was driven entirely by the state inside the machine, so it's all of a sudden the eyes and ears of, of this like kind of like otherwise black hole, right? Because a blockchain can't really has no sense of truth or has no no objective way to measure anything outside of the world. But if it can like survey the world for like <laughs> for this stuff, <laughs> kind of becomes a way for it to communicate. Um, yeah, I mean, that is part of what we're trying to do, right? Because our own internal need uh, as a sort of an ML company was actually to let the models effectively ask for the data that they needed to be annotated to get better, right? So, you know, we have these very, very complicated, um, basically like model in the loop systems where we're trying to predict human answers we get better over time. Each time we figure out we're not that good, we will ask for more annotation. Uh, basically, a job will be launched onto the network, and then results will come back, retraining will occur, et cetera, right? And this is all um, you know, autonomous already, so there's not really like a human being directing each step. It is simply a sort of walking down the, the tree towards higher accuracy, right? Um, and it does work. Like It does actually work quite well. So. You can certainly imagine that as the kinds of tasks that you are asking to solve get more complicated, then you get to some interesting areas in terms of like, well, can you see interesting emergent behavior from how they get segmented, for example, or how they get factored out into smaller tasks? And I suspect we'll see some pretty you know, odd to human eyes uh, behavior there as we get better at that. So can it get to a point where the system is deciding how much to pay for what is trained? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly the way it works now is that you know there are different priorities and of course there is human input on the at the very top level. It's like saying, you know, this you know this sort of like goal is more important than that goal and therefore there's an internal bidding system and the you know there basically is sort of a an order book for the you know the available labor and the tasks to match up i mean you can just plug it into a market that is running in like a you know a mark like an amm or a market maker and chain and then it's a self-contained thing that is trying to keep its price above to where to what it needs to train more information yeah. right <laughs> yeah that's totally true so you're done right you you've you've <laughs> Yeah, but I think it is interesting because, you know, there are not too many programmatic markets outside of the simplest possible instruments, right? So, you know, if you're trying to buy and sell a commodity, if you're trying to trade in like a stock instrument, then yes, of course, there are many, many options to do that electronically. And there are all sorts of elaborate market making behaviors that have occurred in those environments. But as soon as you step into just like slightly more complex things, then you are now immediately outside of the AMM world, right? Um, even thinking about like most of the derivatives projects in the financial sector, it's like there is no market maker <laughs> that is automating that, right? 
it's like someone is calling you on the phone saying like, Hey, do you want to <laughs> buy these, these like weird swaps that I invented? So, uh, you know, I, I am a little curious to see what happens as this gets a little more open and people can participate in it. Uh, because I think there are some interesting opportunities to, to effectively like orb human intelligence, right? Like you can actually do optimal execution on some kinds of jobs if you can break them down into smaller pieces that are cheaper to execute, for example, right? That is uh, really fascinating. <laughs> um, do you guys see the, like, do you think that this system will be like a viable path to like run an Oracle? Like effectively kind of like, what is this? What is truth is like a really hard thing to answer. And a lot of times these, the systems that have been proposed seem fairly corruptible in the same way that like LIBOR was corrupted by you know, two people in the same building calling each other and asking to adjust a couple numbers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is one way to think about what we're doing is it's basically the world's most robust Oracle, right? Um, like it's attacked every day by people with very strong economic consensus to try and break it. And so far, you know, it works quite well against that, right? So you could certainly use it in that context. But could you ask it like specific questions that are, have financial incentives otherwise. Like, you know, I don't know if you saw that during the election, there was a market on a crypto exchange for Trump win or Trump lose. And somebody has to provide the social truth for that thing to actually go to zero or to one. Um, is that, do you, do you think it would be possible to use something that samples such a large set of humans without like, this predefined kind of truth, right? Pre-programmed human truth. So you effectively like kind of, can you identify enough humans to where we believe that it's a large enough sample to where it's not Byzantine fault tolerant? Yes, because internally it's entirely blinded, right? They don't know where the tasks came from and you don't know who's answering. And you have only very, very rough targeting, like which country are they in, right? And so... It's all about like how valuable is the answer to you because you can ask them again um, like a couple of things, not just one question, right? So if you want to, you know, sort of construct what we would call like a batch, you might have a batch of like three questions, and one of them is you know who won the election, right? And the and the other two might be things to which you already know the answer, as an example. And you could even have some of the things to which you know the answer be highly partisan questions, right? So that actually will let you, you know, basically gives you an approximation on how likely are they to, uh, to skew. So we've done experiments like this before. It's always fascinating to see how um, seemingly objective measurements uh, vary around the world. As a simple example, you know, we have customers in the fashion world and so we'll run questions like you know is this like a short sleeve dress or a long sleeve dress right <laughs> and the answer varies widely depending on which country you ask that in you know, if you you know, ask that in you know, some countries in the middle east you're going to get a very different answer than if you ask it in uh, you know, southeast asia so yeah it's it's not a simple thing measuring the world is not not always as easy as we, would, as we would like it to be, but if you have a flexible enough system, you can you can start to you know interrogate things in a pretty interesting way. 
do you guys see the kind of the path to ML being incremental or like or these big jumps? I, I was pretty impressed by G, G, GTP3, but I'm not in the industry, so it's kind of hard for me to tell if that was incremental progress or kind of like a big step. Well, we, I mean, we know the OpenAI folks and we're, we're, you know, good friends with them and fans of their work. And I think they would agree that the thing that GPT-3 is, is it's very large, right? And so scale has its own value in, especially in deep learning, right? The thing that happened in 2012 was not so much that we discovered new math, right? The math was already about 40 years old at that point. It's that we put more data in there. <laughs> and by itself, that already gave us a huge uplift in accuracy. And so once you get to, you know, what's all, like, it's not really quite a web scale model, but it's just, you know, a couple orders of magnitude larger than the things that were coming out of labs, you start to get interesting emergent properties, right? So it's a much longer discussion about like what the trade-offs are there, but I think fundamentally, the, the interesting thing about machine learning is that it's it's simply um, one approach to solving problems that we already know there are solutions for, right? Like we know objectively that there are ways to do general purpose reasoning in a pretty low power budget. And the fascinating thing about uh, ML in particular is as the instruments for neuroscience get better, you can start to approximate what the models that are actually being used are. Right. And even when the instruments are not very good, you can still run experiments that give you some indications about how things are actually working. So one of the best examples of this is uh, there was a study done a few years ago that evaluated human um, object detection at different timescales. And what they found was that below about uh, 100 milliseconds so like you know you just hit yes or no as quickly as you possibly can uh, human beings make the same kinds of category errors as machine learning models especially deep models and then as you start trending towards a second uh, those category errors decrease and they start making different kinds of errors right um, but it does strongly imply there are a couple of different regimes and there are a couple of different models in there and at least one of them is not that dissimilar to what we already have and so I think we're going to start figuring out what those other models are um, over the next 10, 20 years and trying to replicate them in software. It's going to be pretty interesting. And I'm not convinced that we're going to require anywhere near the amount of training data that we're putting into things now, but there is sort of a fundamental conceptual gap between where we are in terms of the models we construct and how we train them today versus what I suspect the final answer is going to be for those things. And so the these, these like gigantic, gigantic models like GPT three are basically filling in the gap to say, okay, how far can we push our current math? Basically, you don't think that these can basically so you know like ten years from now, everything's going to be you know two to the five times faster, <laughs> um, thirty two times faster, right? At at, at least a, a GPT three that is thirty two times bigger you don't think is going to fool a human? Well, you know, the, the Turing test is, is not really, like the classical form is not very useful, right? Because what you 
want is not something that can fool a human, but something that can do what a human can do. And so I'm much less interested in, you know, getting like a, you know, two petabyte model going and being able to fool someone about in conversational um, AI versus saying, okay, can I have like a general purpose reasoning task and can I get an answer to that? Can I have a general purpose science task and can I get an answer to that? And doing that is probably going to be a little harder than just fooling someone in you know, casual conversation on like an entertainment topic. Just because the, the space is actually so much more constrained in those kinds of scenarios, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, to me, like in some ways, the kind of tasks that human wanna, humans want to do are me almost mechanical because we can, we, we figured out how to like bisect the problem, like divide and conquer, right? It's kind of like we figured that out. And that, that seems like you can kind of use GPT-3 as a, as a library and kind of wrap it on top, right? Go, go do backtracking <laughs> and come back. <laughs> um, I, I, I guess I'm kind of like, it almost seems like there's a possibility that it could be that simple because of, I, I was pretty surprised by how well it can carry on a conversation. You know, I think the, the there's sort of a more technical conversation here about recall and things like that, which is probably not of you know broader general interest. But you know, of course, as you as you put more and more stuff into the current systems, you tend to get closer and closer to just getting exactly what you put in back out, right? And it can seem almost magical if you put enough stuff in there, <laughs> right? But it's it's actually not that close to you know what you would consider to be like a hundred percent competent conversational AI. Well, it's it's basically a giant switch statement, right? <laughs> it's just yes. a really yeah. really big one. But it's scary that <laughs> that maybe humans are you know a power petabyte switch statement. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I, I guess maybe not, right? There there's quite a bit more nuance there um yeah i mean if you think about this at the limit of like okay i have now a record of all human conversations since the beginning of time and um, as you ask me something i am simply going to give you the response that is most similar to uh, like the consensus response to that kind of question right <laughs> so it's like very very simple statistical analysis like okay what is the the closest answer to like how are you what is the closest answer to what's the weather today, right? As you start to add additional constraints to that, you're going to get more and more plausible answers, right? So as you say, okay, it's like consensus answer for how are you, but it's going to be uh, people in this city in the last day, right? Now you're getting back to something that is very plausible in most cases, especially if it's the average, right? As you say, like, how's the weather? It's the same thing. You say, okay, I'm only going to give the answers that I've seen for that in the last hour in my neighborhood. Then you're probably going to give the right answer, right? But that isn't really a process of intelligence. It doesn't allow you to do any kind of reasoning past that, right? And so I think if you're trying to do, you know, something that's a little bit different, you're trying to say, like, okay, 
um, you know, I don't want to ask about how the weather is. I want you to find me a molecule that has these properties, for example. Then there's something a little different happening. There's a bit of like, kind of like simple, like compression, right? Like the, like a human does some abstraction and kind of removes a bunch of the noise and then implicitly figures out what you have done in your mind. And we're trying to merge those two together. Um, I think you're right that I, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but I'm not in the industry, but it seems like those, that kind of intelligence isn't quite there yet. Um, but I, I don't know. Like I, I'm, I'm really impressed by like, like AlphaGo, right? It, it, it was just purely generalized, like adversarial network that played against itself, right? That quickly one like figured out that game. It seems like we're kind of like just two steps away from taking something that can plug in these like conversational models and something that can extract the symbols from the the context. Yeah, well, that was actually the the genesis of the um, you know of, of intuition machines was my my sort of work on uh, meta learning, right? And basically learning how to learn. It's not really quite what AlphaGo is, but it's basically what AlphaZero was, right? So it's like, okay, given just a set of rules, can I derive an optimal solution to that? I can then, you know, in, infer through a state um, until it reaches the answer, right? And you can totally do that in constrained domain problems, right? So if you have you know, just a handful of rules like you do in Go, you can absolutely express that. And it's hideously expensive to search for the state <laughs> you know, of available choices, but you can do it. And eventually you'll hit a model that's pretty good, right? But as soon as you start to have more, more degrees of freedom, then the problem just gets radically harder, right? And you see this in robotics, right? There are all kinds of experiments on navigating through space, learning learning to drive, things like that. And even the the best ones are are still terrible. <laughs> like they're really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because you're just, you know, operating in, in a you know, a much more unconstrained environment, right? And the problem is that a lot of the things we want to do are pretty unconstrained environments. So a lot of the success, you know, the success of ML has been basically finding the more constrained problems that have some value and then trying to attack them. And you know, visual domain is a great example of that. Right? Like if you're just trying to recognize an object, you can definitely train a model to pick up, you know, among like, you know, fifty categories. Uh, if you're trying to pick from like five million categories, <laughs> or you know, anything a little more complicated, now you start to struggle. This like kind of like farming this idea of like training it with humans, um, like to me is like is something that is also kind of interesting in itself because the the network that you're training to is human intelligence that you're kind of borrowing <laughs> that <laughs> those CPU cycles right for like a few seconds. It's highly trained CPU cycles. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not like a world computer, but it's sort of you know, like a, a, you know, sort of the world itself, right, that we're sampling from in some ways. And the human mirror. <laughs> if, if, have you thought that if general AI is possible, then it could actually just function through those 
distributed amongst the human minds <laughs> through that loop. <laughs> well, that's the the funny thing is like I could give you a you know demo um, pretty easily that would convince you that general AI existed, right? By simply giving you the consensus answers to any question you ask from a broad range of people. And it's it's sort of shocking how good people are at converging on the right answer. It's the thing we've always been impressed by is, you know, even pretty hard questions, you ask them 85, 90% of people are gonna get it right. And so I, I think long before you get to general AI, you can get to these sorts of man-machine hybrid applications where machine knows when it's not really too confident in its own answer and it can start to backfill that from um, you know, the human sort of hive mind. Uh, is there any like crazy products that people have proposed to use this <laughs> for that you could share? I, I can think of a few now, but I'm wondering if, if people have thought of this already. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, we've had all kinds of interesting things as suggested. <laughs> even, even things like uh, doing drone navigation, right? <laughs> so like live plugging into the hive mind to be like, is this a power line? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm just going to hover for a couple seconds till I get the consensus answer back, and then I can go up or down, <laughs> navigate through the world that way. Oh, that is kind of brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like insane if you have this idea of okay, I'm going to deliver packages from a drone using the consensus answers of like 100 million strangers to navigate the world. Right? It seems like there should be a problem there, but actually, probably works fine. <laughs> oh man, I but. I mean, in some ways, you can make it a real-time system because your sampling rate is so high. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, latency is very important to us in getting the answers back very quickly. <laughs> it's exactly like, you know, there's a time value to money and there's a time value to data, right? And the faster you can move things around, the faster you can get answers back, the more valuable they are. Is this something that you guys are thinking would be more open to general public to kind of run experiments? Like, is there like a API to where I can like, like kind of open AI has this gym, right? Where you can build your problem and then kind of plug it into their, and plug in a training model. Is, is that something that you guys would think about over shipping? Yeah. I mean, we have actually open source libraries that our, our customers can use to um, sort of programmatically defined job types. And we're in the process of shipping all kinds of things to to make things a little more open. Um, obviously, HCAPTCHA is just one example of the kinds of pools you can plug into this underlying system. And so we have already got a bunch of stuff lined up to, you know, to make it a little more open. The trick there being that, you know, the requirements to, to launch into sort of the hive mind are much higher than they are to launch into a pool of a thousand people who have opted in, right? Um, and so if you're trying to just test things out, then it's much better that you test them out with the pool of a thousand people who have opted in. Uh, th this is like even, I think, in some ways more interesting than general purpose AI, because <laughs> could you build like a effectively like a friend or personality out of, out of like a flowing conversation that just get sampled every time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because the question would be, is there an emergent global personality, right? So 
and, and you can even sample that personality by region or by their attributes, right? So you could say, or like, you know, if I'm talking to Finland, is Finland going to be like, you know, depressed or is it going to be upbeat today? <laughs> and you're probably going to get an answer that's pretty consistent. Talk to the statistical average of the, like, whatever party you want to talk to. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it, it's interesting because this is one of those problems that's been sitting there in, in plain sight for many years, and, it, you know, it hadn't really been, been tackled in sort of a meaningful way before we, we came along. And I think we're, you know, we're getting some really interesting data back already but there's a lot more that we can do with it. Does that make you guys like, I mean, I don't understand why like, like 530, I mean like every like survey company, every, every, like everyone that is thinking about like, how do I measure anything about like what people think or want should be like banging at your door. Like, <laughs> like to me, this seems like the, like a very powerful way to, um, concrete real answers from uh from people yeah and we do some of that already it's just that we we come from an ml background and that's really what we do best and so it's usually good to start with what you know <laughs> with any product yeah. you know, i used to tell people when i was you know playing vc like if you're trying to build a general purpose solution like just show me it works in you know like one vertical first and if it works in one vertical that's great if it works in three verticals that's even better and if it works in five, it might actually be, you know, approaching a general purpose solution. Yeah. But if it doesn't work in one, then it's not a solution at all. Yeah, that, I mean, that's great advice for anyone listening. If you're building a platform, make sure it works for at least one use case. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, you, you'd think would be really obvious advice. And yet, you know, all these, like, you know, super clever people used to walk in every day and give their pitches and, you know, talk about all the things that their stuff didn't work for, right? And how hopeful they were that it was going to work for this thing that they hadn't tried yet. <laughs> and those things are just much more satisfying. If, if you come in and you say like, well, I tried it and it worked on this and I'm going to try it on this other thing. We'll see if it works. And if it does, that's like good evidence that I should keep trying more things, right? Um, stick out, stick the scent, all right? <laughs> on- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's basically like, you know, gradient descent over the, you know, the possible space of actually good ideas, right? I, this has been like a, a really fascinating, fascinating conversation. I feel like I could go on for hours, kind of poking your brain and like, what is the hive mind is like one of these science fiction concepts that is <laughs> really, really cool. Um, do you have any like final words for folks? Like, what what would they want to? Where should they go to learn more about? Uh, HCAPTCHA. Yeah, you can learn more on HCAPTCHA.com um, where, as I mentioned, we're also in the process of open sourcing quite a lot of this and you can uh, find those repos on GitHub and if you want to read the sort of white paper about the, the underlying system design, we've actually published one on, uh, you know, on HMT.ai and so there's a lot more information there about that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eli. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it was been absolutely a pleasure to to uh, chat and you know look forward to uh seeing where Solana is going next thank you